Hey everyone, before we get to today's content, I wanted to tell you about a brand new podcast from the 11FS Podcast Network, the FinTech Marketing Podcast hosted by me, Eric Fulweiler, Chief Marketing Officer of 11FS. Over the last couple months, I've been speaking to heads of marketing from the world's leading FinTech and financial service brands, Monzo, Revolut, MasterCard, Zero, Starling, Lemonade, and many more. We heard their insights and ideas on how they build brand and drive growth for their businesses, and now we can bring them to you. So if you're into FinTech, FS, marketing, which I assume you are, uh, please check out our brand new podcast. Search for FinTech Marketing Podcast on any podcast platform. Subscribe, share, leave us a review, and please do let us know your thoughts. Appreciate the support. From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is FinTech Insider News. This week, we bring you Starling and Oak North join coronavirus loan program, US FinTechs helps distribute coronavirus aid, and a women-only neobank is coming to Brazil. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 419 of FinTech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How are you doing today, Simon? Really well, all things considered, Sarah. Yeah, lots to be getting on with. Feels like uh, we're busier than ever, so very grateful for that. How about yourself? I, I am well. I am well. The uh, We just discussed that the stir craziness might be setting in a little bit, but, you know, um, it's nearly the weekend again, so thank goodness for two four-day weeks is all I can say. Uh, so we are still practicing our social distancing, um, and we're all remotely dialed in. But as always, we are joined by some awesome guests. Uh, making their FinTech Insider news debuts, we have Erin Platts, Head of EMEA and President of UK Branch at Silicon Valley Bank. How are you today, Erin? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Are you, are you in the UK or are you based in the States? I'm uh, based in the UK. Yeah, I've been here for almost 13 years now. Time flies, but I haven't lost the accent. <laughs> I, I think you never do, actually, from the people I've met. I think it kind of it kind of gets ingrained. Um, and making welcome return visits, we have Shafali Gupta, VP Strategy and Ops at Fluidly. How are you today, Shafali? Yeah, I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Uh, as I said, it's a little stir-crazy, but, you know, it's, it's to be expected. Um, and last, but by no means least, we have Rasheen Levine, Head of Banks at Flux. How are you today, Rasheen? I'm doing really well, enjoying lockdown more than I thought. Oh, brilliant. That's good to hear. Um, okay, well, welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started. So as we cannot avoid talking about a coronavirus, we're going to start with the biggest related stories of the week, dig deep into them, and then get those out of the way and move on to other news in the industry that isn't directly related to the pandemic. Uh, so let's start with the fact that Starling Bank and Oak North have joined the coronavirus loan program. So the British Business Bank accredited the two fintech lenders under the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme, or CBILS. Uh, the decision comes after challenger banks questioned the efficiency of the CBILS rollout and called for more transparency. Now, the British Business Bank says it's trying to onboard new lenders more quickly. Um, the Cooperative Bank and Synergy Bank were also added to the loans panel this week. Um, so for more on this, we actually spoke to Starling Bank CEO Anne Bowden, who had this to say. And there was a number of banks that were already accredited, and we weren't accredited. Um, and therefore, our customers were initially at a disadvantage. Uh, so we mm. decided to work night and day on an application to get that accreditation as soon as possible. And we were um, announced on Saturday 
um, uh, that we're now accredited member of that scheme. So that is really us, you know, realizing that we have to be there for our customers. Um, so our customers will have to apply mm. to us um, for um, these government-assisted um, guaranteed loans. So that's one of the things we have to do to help our customers. Okay, so um, it sounds like good news, you know, more more providers in the mix. Um, and I imagine one would hope that uh, these new providers that have come on, particularly Starling Bank and Oak North, might be able to overcome some of the hurdles that have so far sort of uh, that the larger banks have fallen at, shall we say, namely being able to handle uh, a larger volume of applications and also, you know, being able to take those applications um, entirely digitally. Uh, because again, some of the, the larger banks have, have really, really struggled um, just for context, apparently there have been 300,000 informal inquiries about CBO's help from SMEs. Um, but as of Wednesday, so this is last week for those listening to this on Monday, um, £1.1 billion had been lent via 6,020 loans. So that's about uh, 21% of the people who had formally applied, or sorry, businesses that had formally applied. Um, so things are getting through, but uh, there's there's still quite a, a lot of people out there anxiously waiting to hear whether they've been um, accepted or rejected. Apparently, the rejection rate is about nine percent at the moment. Uh, so we'll wait to see if that if that goes up or down as we get more data. But um, anybody have any initial thoughts on this one, Rasheen? Yeah, it's a it's a good start. Um, but when you've got three hundred billion waiting to be deployed, um, and so far only managed to get sort of just over a billion out the door, it probably needs to speed up. So I think there's been some some fair comparisons drawn with other countries. Um, Germany last week, I think, had managed to find access to around 7 billion. That figure's probably higher now. Uh, I think Australia and Switzerland have both been cited as being much quicker uh, out of the tracks, um, getting loans out within sort of 24 hours. Um, so I think that the view is that we're still sluggish and the traditional banks and high street banks are struggling at the moment. No one is trying to deliberately slow anything processes down but of course just the sheer urgency and so many volumes of inquiries coming through at once um, will create more bottlenecks and those processes were never quite slick anyway so um, I think if you look at the actual I guess the dire situation we have in front of us there is kind of concerns rightly from the government that what happens if these loans aren't repaid but at the same time, what happens if these loans don't get out to the SMEs? Um, a fifth of SMEs are said to potentially be in a problem, problematic space in about a month's time where they may well shut down. And if that's four million jobs lost, um, if there's future tax revenues at stake and, you know, salaried employees then that, that don't have jobs anymore, does that, does that kind of you know, on that balancing act of like making sure this money comes back in repayments versus the long-term effects on the economy. It's that really, really tricky balance to, to have. Simon, did you have something to add to that? Yeah, I think uh, there's some a lot of interesting things going on behind the scenes here. As we know, the, the banks are having to work uh, with the British Business Bank um, in order to draw down on these uh, funds and, and, and issue the loans. And of course, Starling talk about having an Oak North. And I think there was, a, there was a couple of others as well that you mentioned, Synergy Bank and Cooperative Bank, have now become lenders through the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Programme. The thing is, that's really uh, re reusing a facility that was never intended to be used for this purpose. Um, there's a great saying that Richard Crook said on Blockchain Insider last week, which is, um, you go to war with what you have, not what you need. And we happen to have something for putting lending out to small businesses that really isn't 
fit for this type of purpose. Um, but we've tried to use it and we've tried to quickly do something. Um, and, and the scale of the market demand is is many times higher than what they're able to get out through that pipe. But at least something's getting out. And you know, good on the British Business Bank who have never signed up lenders as quickly as this before. Um, but we're in a time where not only do we have to do lots of things that have never happened this quickly before, we need to do them a lot, lot faster. Um, and sort of that's if other countries can do it, why can't the UK? And what lessons can we learn becomes an, an interesting question, I think, for this group to play with. Shafali. So um, I think that actually it's absolutely a step in the right direction. Um, I think what fintechs bring to the mix is um, some really good tech-enabled um, processes and um, speed of turnaround times. So, for example, tech-enabled underwriting, uh, pre-filled questionnaires, you know, integration with banking and accountancy data systems, and they're usually digital, so quite easy to complete. Um, and then on top of that, decisioning is usually pretty automated as well. You get a decision within um, hours, if not a couple of days, as opposed to weeks that it could take before. Um, and then finally, in terms of dispersing the loans themselves, I think Starling, I think Anne did mention something around how you can open a um, get loans in to your bank account within hours. So I think that speed and turnaround and just getting more people just helping with this like all hands on deck type situation. I think that's like a really, really positive step in um, the right direction. Erin. I was just going to build on to that point. And for me, it, you know, it really can't be an either or type situation, right? A lot of the high street banks, they've got the balance sheets to deploy and they're slow and, and sometimes clunky, um, but we're gaining momentum. Uh, and I think on the, on the FinTech and Challenger Bank side, the, the, the speed of distribution is hugely exciting. Um, and as more of these either challenger banks and or fintechs get, uh, get accredited, hopefully through the British Business Bank. And I think Simon, you raise a good point. Um, they definitely weren't prepared for this. And so I've got a lot of sympathy for our friends at British Business Bank working night and day trying to get these lenders accredited. Um, but the interesting bit will be as, uh, you know, some of the fintechs are pushing volume. It's going to be about their capital and liquidity as well. And so how are we thinking about this, not just in the short term, which is really critical, but we're going to see this play through pretty rapidly because the demand is for sure there from these SMEs to get access to liquidity. So that's why I think we've got to find a way to un unclog both parts of the ecosystem to support these SMEs. So I think that was the question I was going to ask was going to be along the lines of um, with when when you this is, it's great that they can do it and there's no doubt that they will be able to do things faster in terms of processing applications and getting approved uh, you know funds for those approved to accounts. But do we think we're going to see a difference in approval rates from the from the the new banks versus the traditional banks? I mean, we haven't seen much yet in terms of like the different approval ratings. We haven't seen which banks have lent what where. We did see quite early on some of the banks were playing by the, um, the letter of the rule, not the intent. So asking small businesses to sort of sign up, you know, personal property to, to guarantee loans and looking at kind of, you know, ridiculous interest rates. And I think a lot of that's been, been pulled back now. But um, I'd be really interested to know about approval ratings on this because um, most credit risks no, uh, because most credit models are no longer fit for purpose. You know, the credit models they've been using, the underwriting risks, you know, that they have been, those models that they've spent very long times calculating no longer work, guys, because you don't know, you know, when that when that business will get back on its feet or whatever. So, yes, I just wonder, do we think we'll see differences in approval ratings between the two? Um, I am fairly confident that we will see, you know, banks being quite cautious about approval, approval here full stop because they've also got 
demands on their own capital. You know, they're also concerned about their own liquidity here. Um, but yeah, I just think that 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 interesting kind of uh, dichotomy between new, new lenders and old lenders. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think um, they'll also have their own uh, balance sheet and credit portfolios, right? So depending on whether you're a big bank or an existing lender, your existing book is going to dictate your approval uh, your approval appetite for, for new business as well. Um, so I think that's going to uh, play a, a large part in, uh, in how we see um, credit appetite come through the system. But you're right, a lot of these models... Um, uh, you know, the closest thing that we can compare to recently is 2000, 2008, probably. Um, but it, where it's, this is a whole different ballgame. Um, and so I think, I think we're going to struggle. And I guess where I get a little bit nervous in some of these alternative lenders that are uh, reliant upon additional external capital, a big part of the diligence is the credit modeling um, and the default rates and how this is going to come kind of play through. So um, I'm hopeful that uh, existing investors will continue to funnel capital into these businesses, but uh, I guess time will tell. Uh, yeah, I mean, really interesting. Rasheen, did you want to add to that? Um, yeah, I think that we can potentially see more funds out the door if um, if we kind of have more of these lenders actually approve. So we have at the moment uh, the range of kind of bank lenders and some more traditional lenders. Um, I think there are many calls to add to that mix. So if you have... Uh, if you look at kind of current stats, about one sixth, I think, of, of lending is actually the alternative lending market to SMEs. So that means it's, it's not banks. And actually, the British Business Bank know this more than anyone because in 2015, they set up the bank referral scheme, which required major banks, high street banks, to give businesses they refused a loan to, to a referral to a government designated platform. One of those is funding options. I think Simon Curtin was on the show not too long ago. And they then sought businesses to these alternative lenders, the likes of iWalker, Market Finance, Funding Circle, Liberis, places which um, can look at SMEs in a different way to maybe a large bank can. And they can get funds out the door and they can do that very quickly. You know, iWalker can probably approve a loan in, in maybe under 50 minutes at times if everything is in place. And I think that it is a kind of all hands to deck needed right now. Um, if we are just to get the f loans out, um, you know, it will need a variety of lenders. And I think right now the, the view is that this isn't a diverse range enough. Let the alternative lenders play in this space and let them start to get approvals. I think by the time this podcast does come out, probably on Monday, I think that list will have probably longer than it is right now. We'll see some familiar names in the fintech community uh, going on to that. It could be Tide. It could be some other alternative lenders. Um, but yeah, hopefully that will make a big impact. So the idea being that, you know, if you spread the risk, you'll get more money out there. Um, Simon, any final thoughts on that one? Yeah, so I think it's also a hard time to be at a big bank or any other lender right now, because whilst the British Business Bank does guarantee 80% of the loans on what terms, and we're in unprecedented, uncharted territory, so banks have still got to look after their own capital, as I think Erin um, pointed to, and, and, and Sarah, you mentioned as well. And actually, the whole economy could be a house of cards at the moment with the banks having contagion again. Post-2008, we, we ensured that the banks were better capitalized, but some of the stress tests that the banks banks have been put under, even in the most extreme scenarios, probably didn't expect a near 50% drop in the markets and you know 20 million unemployment in the US and, and an economic shutdown. I mean, that is unprecedented. Um, it's like a Great Depression in a month. It, it's massive. So like 
I'm not surprised the banks are being somewhat conservative, but also in the hardest times, sometimes you have to get more creative rather than just reacting with fear. So what are the what are the things that we can do and where's the opportunities? And, and hopefully we can all learn from what the fintechs do that succeeds, um, but also learn from sometimes what not to do because they're not innovation will have some failures and we need we need the british business bank to to um be able to backstop at that 80 percent, and we need i think some clarity for lenders on on how they're going to do that okay be really interesting one to watch um and speaking of fintech distributing stimulus funds we're now going to um take a look at the situation in the u.s so um the PayPal, Intuit, uh, and Square have been authorized to issue coronavirus relief in the U.S. Uh, the fintech companies have been actually lobbying for weeks to be able to participate in the U.S. government's emergency lending program for small businesses. Um, the Small Business Association gave PayPal, Intuit, and Square the go-ahead to participate in what's called the Paycheck Protection Program. Don't say that too quickly. Um, as a result, they can each distribute aid to small businesses that keep employees on their payroll for two months. However, as of recording this episode literally an hour ago, there was no money left to be lent. So the original $350 billion that the US had put aside had all gone. Um, politicians are now clashing over how to top up the fund. Um, and in the meantime, no new applications to participate in the program um, or indeed receive funds are being taken. So my first take on this is that was never enough money and capping it at that limit makes it so unfair because it's first come, first served. And not only is it first come, first served in terms of the you know, businesses that get their act together and get their applications in, but also it's potluck on whether your bank is able to process your application because the banks in the US haven't necessarily been any quicker than the banks in the UK at getting through those applications and making decisions. So, um, you know, great that these new lenders can now participate, but if there's no money to lend, it's a bit of a moot point. Um, who wants to go first on this one? Erin, did you want to? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the between PPP and C-bills and CL-bills, this has been, uh, you know, we've been living and, and breathing it. And I, I guess the first comment I would make is I am personally hopeful that there will be more, substantially more money to come, right? I mean, the the, the backlog of, of companies that have applied across the states and are still applying um, and also the, you know, U.S. subsidiaries of U.K. and European companies are also, um, you know, queuing at the door as well. So there will be more money. And so um, I think it's fantastic that the, the, you know, the SBA has opened up um, and accredited different financial institutions, different lenders, different parties, uh, because it's there's got to be more. I mean, the unemployment uh, levels in the U.S. are just uh, astonishing and uh, and companies and, and people are really, really, really suffering. So more money will come. That's my bet, at least. Shafali, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I was just saying that um, the amount of money, the $350 billion, seems quite low for the um, you know, SMEs, SMEs in um, the US. I think there's like 25, 30 million there. And if you compare that to the five and a half million SMEs in the UK, it's kind of comparable fund sizes. So yeah, I think there'll definitely be some work to be done there to increase that pot. I mean, I was astounded how small it was to start with, I have to say. like It did, only took some basic maths <laughs> to work that out. Simon, did you want to add to that? Yeah, so there's there's some silver linings here. I think that the um, amount of fintech lenders that got their processes up and running quickly, um, the fact that the government um, had the small business administration had a platform called eTran that was up and down, but they managed to get the thing running. There are probably some stories and bucks to be written about the amount of pressure that organization has been under. And the other thing that sticks out is just how many 
community banks have been really effective in this time uh, and actually a major difference to the uk where community banks don't play nearly the same role they do um there's a really really good tweet i saw on twitter um that compares um something from microsoft and navtech um which has community banks by state um with some data from i think it's uh the census bureau and the small business administration and what it does it was uh, tim hansen who, who posted this and he found that um, states with more community banks had lent more to small businesses. And, and so no surprise, diversity of lenders equals uh, higher amounts dispersed per business in that state. Now, there's, there's a point to what Rasheen was saying earlier and, and to, uh, I think, to some of Aaron's points as well, which is getting more lenders to and diversifying your market rather than having a concentrated market can really make a difference here and dispersing those funds quickly. Um, but also there is a broader point about there needs to be a lot of funds there in the first place to disperse. And, and I don't think we've seen the end of this by a long shot. I mean, uh, it's really interesting as well, just to, to add a little bit of context or a little bit more detail onto Intuit's model um, for, for what it was going to do. It was going to distribute the funds through its QuickBooks capital product. So this is sort of really showing something that we have seen from other fintech lenders, I have to say. But it, it tells people in advance, this is how much funding you're eligible to receive. So it kind of gives you that pre-approved um amount and then you just sort of click accept or, or not accept you know whatever whatever you want to do about it um so i think that that's that's a model that we've started to see somewhat in the uk from both fintech lenders and in fact barclays does that to a certain extent so i think that's that's really interesting and it feels like that's a model that could be utilized outside of this situation as well um erin did you want to add something there yeah absolutely i mean i think that um a lot of what we've seen is just sheer confusion and a bit of panic around access to these schemes. Am I in? Am I out? What do I need um, to provide? And so uh, I think it's a, a really exciting um, rollout from Intuit because not only are the companies confused, but frankly, the banks are confused as well. And they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I document and approve this in a way that I'm not going to be stuck without a guarantee? Um, and, and that like it or not is I think what's stagnating, um, some of the, some of the banks from, or lenders from, from moving. I guess the one thing, and sorry to take a step back on the C bills, but I, I feel like I have to, to raise it when we're talking about PPP and, and C bills is, um, these are programs that, um, are hugely important, uh, but they're also leaving out a, a good portion of, of the ecosystem. And, and we, um, this is a very myopic comment from Silicon Valley Bank, but we only are working with innovation businesses. And a lot of these innovation businesses are fast growth and they're loss making. Um, and they're being excluded from some of these plans because of that reason. And so, um, you know, we, we are, we're working hard and I know a lot of you guys are working hard to figure out, well, what else can we do to step into the void? Um, because a lot of these companies are phenomenal and they're getting left behind. I think that's a very good point. And I think it's also worth pointing out, I've mentioned this elsewhere, but also loans aren't the solution for everybody. Um, there are other programs in place, but, you know, is taking on more debt at this point the most appropriate thing for your particular small business? Are there other uh, schemes that you you could be or should be making use of? And I think that goes back to that point about confusion. You know, there's so much noise being made about C-bills, but maybe that's not the most appropriate thing for your business and your circumstances. Um, I think it's interesting as well that from as far as I understand it, that the PPP loans will be written off if they use it in the first two months for a certain for a certain set of um uh, you know, for, for, for payroll, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas as far as I understand it, that's not the case in the UK. So you are just taking on debt that you'll have to pay back at a later date. Um, Shafali, did you have a final point on that? 
I um, actually just wanted to mention a bit about the cap uh, QuickBooks Capital uh, product. So it's very interesting to see how, I guess, fintechs operate um, when you think of, so they have um, for their own customers, um, the process is actually quite seamless. But for people who are not part of their, I guess, uh, online payroll customer, um, there's actually a massive list of forms that people need to fill out. And so that's where the bureaucracy starts creeping in. So things like, you know, all of your articles of incorporation, your IRS forms, your payroll summaries, um, 12 month profit loss statements, and there's a bunch of other uh, stuff, like I would say the list is pretty long. And so it's very interesting to see that if you're actually part of, uh, if you're a member of this fintech, then you're, you're good to go. But if not, then again, it's like slightly difficult. Yeah, no, no, that's that's totally fair. I hadn't appreciated that, so that's that's really interesting. Um, all right, so I'm going to move us on to our next story. We're staying sort of in the U.S. This is an interesting one. So this is that the U.S. government is in talks with Onfido about immunity passports. So experts such as, and I'm going to butcher this, so I apologise, Dr. Anthony Fauci have floated the idea of allowing former coronavirus patients to work, return to work. They'd be accredited with so-called immunity passports to prove their status. Um, reportedly, the US government has discussed the idea with London-based cybersecurity startup Onfido, which has also discussed the idea with several European governments. Um, documents show that the passport would be used... Uh, Documents show that the passport would use test results tied to users' identities and could be implemented with the help of a dozen partners. Um, separately, uh, Onfido has also announced a $100 million raise this week. Um, it plans to use the cash to mostly, uh, well, mostly use that cash to bolster its US presence. Apparently, that was already its largest and fastest growing market. Um, the round had actually been in the planning since January, um, but that's when the fir virus first emerged in China. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of just sort of different elements to this. One is this idea of, uh, you know, the, the immunity passports um, and, you know, how technology can help with that. There's also a question about whether immunity passports are a thing we actually want to be talking about at this stage and, you know, how much data there is to prove that once you've had it, you are actually immune and no longer spreading it, all that kind of thing. And then the third thing is that, you know, actually, is this uh, this particular period of crisis for so many actually boom time for some startups that have technology that all of a sudden everybody wants? Who wants to go first on that one? Rasheen, jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good news story that someone's managed to raise 100 million Series D right now because there's lots of horror stories out there of term sheets being pulled. But as you mentioned, anything kind of related to security and remote working is is getting a load of interest. So good for Onfido. Um, as someone who thinks they may have had Corona but isn't absolutely sure, this is I kind of like this story because I love the idea that you know then it's like freedom again. But of course, there are so many uh, other implications to think about. Um, a lot of this is around civil liberties. You know, will people want to actually have this data out there? Um, and you know, what does this mean basically going forward? Um, is there privacy concerns? Um, it's a really, really big question of debate. And I don't think it's probably as easy a solution as it sounds at first in the headline. And I think even Onfido have kind of been quite careful to say, look, this, let's not overstate this at the moment. We're in conversation, but we, we really don't know where this is going to lead. I think um, it was a great headline, wasn't it, for all the media that had it very, very much clickbaity. And I think uh, that's not necessarily, as always the case, there was a lot more nuance behind it. I think uh, on video, actually, we're talking quite a lot about the idea that um, in the UK, the NHS asked for volunteers 
to help out, um, you know, with, with kind of non, uh, I suppose, non-medical tasks, if you like. 75,000 people signed up, but they couldn't vet anybody to to say that it was appropriate for them to volunteer in those roles in hospitals. Um, and they had to stop the applications. And of course, Onfido stepped in and said, we could re- that's something we actually really could help with quite quickly and quite easily. Um, Simon, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, aside from the headline, quietly Onfido raised 100 million and Onfido's kind of become one of the default KYC solutions for fintech challenges, but also incumbents. And actually, I think there's there's something to take away here, which is if you're about to look at your onboarding procedures and you very quickly have to onboard a lot of customers and they have competitors, there's Identity Mind and there's Authentics and there's others out there as well. But like organizations like this, A, raising significantly and B, you're kind of doing end-to-end digital um, for at least KYC and a lot of the risk stuff that comes with that as well uh, is, is really, really powerful. And there's never been a more important time to have that truly digital end-to-end process. And you know, this is an organization that is quite sensitive to privacy and is quite sensitive to, to how you actively manage that data. And if that does allow us to open up the economy, then great, because there's this whole other conversation about um, contact tracing and countries that have done contact tracing have been much better at uh, you know, sort of preventing the spread and reopening their economies faster. Um, but it's such a big conversation that not one tech player is going to be involved in. And, and I think that's going to be a, a really, really important thing. So, you know, like if they're doing well, great. We've seen Zoom share price do really well. Um, there are times where digital can really make a difference and, and hopefully it does. Erin, did you want to add to that? Yeah, and, and this, this is probably stating the obvious, but um, getting people back in is going to be so much harder, right? And we're, you know, we've got 450 people across our EMEA business. And, uh, you know, we mobilized working from home in less than 48 hours, you know, full, full bank FX desk and, and you know, touch wood, it was very seamless. Um, but already starting the planning of when and how we can get back in and in a way that um, is keeping our employees well-being and safety and our clients' best interests front of mind is is such a complex proposition. Um, and so, you know, companies like Onfido and others, it's gonna we're gonna have to rely on digital innovation to be able to to do that in a graceful way. And, and I mean, such an impressive team and such an impressive business that um, it's wonderful to see uh, a, a London, UK business being uh, considered for such a, a huge, you know, US government-led program, whether, you know, comes out and manifests itself exactly as we, uh, we've discussed, we'll see. But, um, you know, that didn't really happen five, six, seven years ago. Um, so uh, it's a, I, I think from that side, um, Rasheen, as you said, it's a real good news story. Uh, yes, I think it's a huge vote of confidence for Onfido, which, as I said, is already growing um, exponentially in the US. So, you know, that, that's great news. Um, Shafali, did you want to add something? Yeah, I was going to say, generally, governments would usually look internally to find a solution. And so the fact that they actually uh, went you know, across the ocean <laughs> to look at a UK company. And, you know, we all know that the US is kind of a graveyard for UK fintechs. So the fact that they actually emerge victorious is um, a fab story. Um, but on the point of immunity passports, very quickly, I think there's actually a load of stuff that needs to kind of get aligned before we even get to that stage where Onfido would be able to um, be effective. So, you know, obviously there's the uh, medical and scientific bit that Roshini mentioned around, you know, whether um, this immunity test even works, uh, how accurate would they be? Would we have a lot of false positives? But also then this operational bit, right, where, okay, now you have to mass create these tests, you have to distribute them, 
you have to make sure that the tests come out with the uh, uh, the right result and there's no like uh, fraudulent people looking at taking that result. And then after that is where Onfido would come into the picture. So while this may not uh, be like the perfect solution for immunity passports, there's still definitely various other use cases that um, they would be useful for. I, I think I think actually to me that's almost the biggest story here and we've kind of all touched on it is that um, the immunity passports everybody's a little bit skeptical about but the idea of a UK-based fintech that's being raised this much money, being accepted widely geographically, being considered for large contracts and for a technology that those of us in the industry are completely au fait with and want to see everywhere but for other industries to start adopting it, looking at it, you know, trying to trying to use it um, and that will only obviously increase the use of it exponentially so you know if healthcare providers start using digital id and v if if governments start using digital id and v then you know people will feel more comfortable doing it for things like financial services and hopefully we'll see much wider spread adoption of it and that can only be for the good um simon did you have a final point you wanted to make there I was just going to make exactly that point. If I'm an incumbent bank right now and I happen to have a small challenger flanker brand that had used something like an Onfido, uh, I'd be thinking very seriously about how I adopt that and roll that out. Because look, there, there are a number of... Like, um, I'm thinking about HSBC Kinetic, Metal by NatWest, Bow by uh, RBS. I'm thinking about uh, all of those uh, those flanker brands that and the Dutch banks have several that do end-to-end digital onboarding. How can you take those and, and put them into your existing service centers? That becomes a really key question. And actually, these organizations like Onfido, and there are many others, to be fair to, to the others, um, can do a lot of that stuff. And if you're buckling right now under the call volume, Actually, where is the thinking space for this? And I think it's very, very hard for executives inside the incumbents right now to build the thinking space. But actually, it, this could be the ultimate stitch in time to really think about how you know there's never been a more important time to to think about these fintechs. And it's not just a, as a vitamin, but actually as a paracetamol, as something that solves the underlying problem. Great. Well, um, we're going to be back very shortly, but let's take a quick break. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech Systems, a global leader in identity verification technology. With over 80 million users and trusted by the world's largest banks, MyTech provides tomorrow's identity verification for today's uncertainty. See how at mytechsystems.com. That's M-I-T-E-K, MyTech. Are you switching up your morning routine now we're all in social distancing? Well, so are we. In fact, we've started two daily breakfast shows to help you kickstart your day on both sides of the Atlantic. The Fintech Insider Breakfast Show, we chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests, all dialing in remotely, of course. It goes live on David Breer's LinkedIn every morning at 8.30 a.m. BST. Just follow David on LinkedIn to get the notification. And if you're US-based and 8.30 BST is just a little bit too early, do not worry, we haven't forgotten you. We also have a US option. Fintech Insider Breakfast Show US, hosted by Sam Moore, will go live at 10.30 EDT on the 11FS LinkedIn, so grab a coffee and tune in. Just follow 11FS on LinkedIn to get the daily notification. And for both shows, don't forget to add your comments in the thread. We love hearing where you're tuning in from, and we'll try and answer as many questions as we can on each show. Okay, back to the news now, and we're moving on from coronavirus and talking about some other things happening in the world. So our first story for this section is that Morgan Stanley leads a $34 million round in 86400 uh, The Australian Neobank, which is owned by Cuscal, the uh, payments conglomeration uh, in Australia, closed its Series A round with $90 million in equity capital. 
Um, it currently has 170,000 accounts and is expected to hit 500,000 accounts within the next year. Uh, its mortgage book currently sits at $20 million, and with the new funding, the company intends to hit $2 billion in loans by 2021. Uh, it says it currently has seven products live and is expecting to launch three more by the end of this year. Uh, I should point out that those are Australian dollars, um, just in case anybody is confused. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that only this morning, uh, Wallex, uh, another Australian fintech, announced a Series D round of $160 million, taking its total equity raise to $360 million. Since its Series C in March 2019, it's expanded globally with new offices in Tokyo, Bangalore and Dubai. So um, there's a few things to unpick here. We've got an Australian neobank going out to raise money for the first time. Um, as I said, it's owned by Cuscal, so that's where a lot of its capital has come from up till now. Um, and then we've got the news that, you know, Australian neobanks and Australian fintechs indeed generally are, are doing pretty well uh, when it comes to funding at the moment. Um, it's also, uh, if anybody remembers from a few weeks ago, uh, Zinja, another neobank, recently had a significantly large raise um, from a Dubai-based investor. So um, who wants to go first on whichever point you like, or even indeed a point I haven't mentioned? Rasheen. I don't like their name. What, what's that about? <laughs> Apparently, it's the number. Of, it's the number of seconds in a day. Yeah, I, I did read that, and I was sort of still a bit like, right, okay. <laughs> um, but no, in, in fairness to them, they must be doing something right because um, I did also read that their their NPS, their net promoter score, is uh, forty six, and in comparison to the other big four banks in Australia, they're apparently averaging about two point one. So something is going right. Um, I did have a look at their website, and I think something that's quite cool is they have a link out to a Trello board, which is basically all their sort of product roadmap. And it has all the features. So it has those they've done, those they're working on, and then you can kind of, you know, suggest some and there's stuff that's coming up. And it, it does look really impressive. Um, there's some really cool stuff in there. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff we've seen from Monzo and Starlink, but there's obviously some some really interesting things as well in the pipeline. So um, yeah, fair play to them. I have lost track of the amount of neobanks Australia now doing some really big raises, but I guess it's a, a market that's hotting up. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, um, that, that Trello board idea is something that we've seen quite quite a few other banks do as well but it's nice to see these guys picking up on it and learning from each other and that is something we see across Australia that the neobanks they have there have definitely learned from what banks have done elsewhere and moved faster because of it. Um, Simon you wanted to add something? Yeah, I think it's a story of execution, right? So they've they've not only done it, but they've done it differently. It's not what you do, it's the way you do it. It's not the features they have, it's not the price they offer. It's something about, um, I think, Rajin, it's one thing to publish a roadmap, but it's that's almost like a symptom of a way of working, which is we're not trying to compete on features. We're competing on execution and customer service and, and how we build what we do. Uh, and I think that's a, a really important point that often gets missed. It's, it's like I can, I can copy what one of the challenges Bank's done. Um, but actually, uh, if I have the same features, do I have the same product? Maybe I don't. And the I, I look at Barclays in the UK as, as an organization that's actually started to really not only ship features, but ship really interesting uh, stuff into its core product offering. And how that changes the incumbent's landscape in Australia could be as significant as, as the challenge's introduction. But it change how they work on the inside? And I think that's that's the the big lesson there is is like that way of working. It's not what you do; it's how you do it that's allowed these organisations to execute at the pace they have. I think it's also important to remember with um, eighty six 
6,400 that the other neobanks all went down. There's three other major neobanks in Australia. Um, three, They all went down the route of doing sort of a, a prepaid card or a prepaid account, a current account, if you like, is what we'd call it here. There is Judo, which uh, focuses on SME, but 86,400 was the first one to do loans and mortgages. So maybe following more of an Atom model, perhaps. Maybe that's the, the comparison here. Um, and the Australians are, and I said this several times, even more obsessed than the Brits with property if that's possible. So you give them a good mortgage deal and they will sniff it out. And I think that that has a huge um, amount to do with this bank's success. But fair play to them. They spotted the opportunity, they spotted the gap and they executed quickly, which given they're backed by an incumbent group uh, is very impressive. Um, Shafali, you wanted to, to add something there. I was actually going to make the exact same point around how they're going to they're going through the uh, on the lending route, and I think there has been quite a bit of pressure recently to, for new banks to prove kind of their unit economics, and that's been something that's quite tri- been quite tricky um, across the world, really. And so I'm very interested to see in how this model works out. Also, they're quite focused on uh, savings to the customer, so very much around um, energy switching and potentially when insurance switching uh, down the line, who knows. But I think one of the things was they're trying to get um, every customer of theirs to save, I think, 3000 Australian dollars in a year. So that's kind of the angle that they're going at, which is quite different from the um, other new banks. Erin, yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, just a, a, a slightly separate comment, but it's been also interesting to see the likes of Morgan Stanley, Goldman, JP Morgan, you know, continuing to write these checks and invest in neobanks and fintechs. And I think um, my guess would be as we start to see, you know, some of the valuations coming down across the globe, um, that they're going to be increasingly, increasingly active. Um, but, well, yeah, I guess we'll see. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think, I think as I've been saying for a long time, Australia is one to watch. I'm so pleased that my optimism is being, uh, you know, given evidence by the fact investors are, are throwing money into that market. So I'm very excited to see what comes next. Uh, Simon, did you have one uh, one final point to add on that? On Airwallocks, um, I think everybody's missing this story. And low key, um, they are one of the most interesting companies in fintech, in my opinion. Uh, if you've not checked them out, definitely do. They're sort of like currency cloud meets Stripe. Um, so they, they allow you to do um, FX payments and international payments, but they also have the TransferWise borderless account. And it's all API driven. And this is all coming out of Australia. And they do all of this at interbank rate. So it's like if Revolut, Currency Cloud, and Stripe had a baby. And their investors include um, Sequoia and DST. And if uh, you've got those two in your cap table, that's a pretty big signal that interesting things might be happening with this company. So keep an eye on Airwallets. And if I'm in a bank's corporate banking division or a cash management division, I'd really want to be looking very, very closely at Airwallets. Um, as you can probably tell, I'm a little bit excited by them. And and they've got a long way to go in the future. Um, but sometimes you can you can tell a little bit from cap tables and another weak signals. So yeah, that's why that excited me. I think, yeah. And from my perspective as, a, as an Ozophile, you know, they are, I think, the biggest uh, Australian fintech out there and one of the most successful. So, so I'm a fan too. Um, but I am going to move us on to our next story, which is another story of investment. And it's that Visa has invested in open banking and compliance platform RailsBank. So the uh, global payments giant has invested in Railsbank alongside Tokyo venture capital firm Global Brain. 
Uh, the amount has not been disclosed, but it's rumoured to be in the millions. Um, Rails Bank will also work with Visa to offer banking as a service innovation in Southeast Asia as part of a five-year partnership. Um, it's also recently become a Visa principal issuing partner. Um, the company's platform uses APIs to build and launch financial products that other companies can then use or sell, much like many other banking as a service offerings. Um, and Rails Bank is also apparently expected to detail US expansion plans in coming months. So um, it sounds like Visa's gone all in here. There's a lot of different elements to this. There's an investment and there's a couple of strategic partnerships. I think possibly also worth pointing out that Visa has strategic investment in TrueLayer, which uh, is not quite the same thing, but it does op- operate an APA platform, API platform that you know has the same principle at heart, allowing third parties to build innovative fintech products on top of you know um, other infrastructure. Um, and also, of course, it owns Plaid, which I don't think we could uh, possibly forget at this point. So put it this way, it's certainly been on a spending spree. Um, thoughts on this one? Simon, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, Visa spending spree is very API driven lately. Um, it's either TrueLayer or it's Plaid or it's this. And it's actually, um, you know, I, I won the clock back five, six, seven years ago in payments when Stripe was was an up and comer and people weren't really telling the the API story um, in the uh, I think in the mainstream quite the way they are now. It's it's a default that I would offer API first and pay as you go models supported by a subscription model like Plaid does, like Rails Bank does, like Stripe do. And the, uh, I think that it's a late recognition, but it's a recognition nonetheless by the likes of a visa that, oh my goodness, if we don't get our arms around this, this w- will end up being disintermediated slowly and slowly because this is a really valuable service and we want this to extend our network. Um, so the you know, Rails Bank have produced, I think, something that looks like uh, not dissimilar to what you would expect from a Stripe, but with different payments methods. It also looks a little bit like Galileo that were recently snapped up by um, SoFi. This payments API space is going to, I think, become increasingly valuable and increasingly important because if you're trying to bootstrap an idea, if you're trying to launch a fintech, it's never been cheaper and it's never been faster. And that opens it up to a whole new brands, a whole new companies, uh, just like Shopify made it super easy for anybody to open a, a website and um, and kind of get their business online, these sort of platforms potentially allow for a Shopify of banking, a Shopify of fintech, so that anybody could build that financial services product offering, but with guardrails around it that keep it regulated. And that's really exciting. I think it's really interesting just how many of those you've seen come to market, though, because I think banking as a service is, is something that we've really seen boom lately. So we've not only got people like Rails Bank, um, Solaris uh, Bank in, in Germany is another one, of course, we have our own, own foundry. Um, but it's it's a concept that's really, really taken off. And I wonder how much room there is in the market for it. Sorry, Simon, did you want to add something? On that bank as a service point, though, I think that's such a misunderstood term or if not i did i have an issue with how the market's using the term because bank as a service is kind of being used for is it the api layer on top of a core banking platform on top of a banking license or is it the um, cards provider is it you know is it gps is it Wirecard? is it galileo is it rails like who is bank as a service is it temenos um and their latest platform and actually that's creating a lot of confusion um and i think it was angela stranger a16z sort of said that the fintech stack is actually really 
really, really interesting. If you start looking at who owns the user experience, who owns the fraud and compliance, who owns the customer operations, who owns the product layer, who owns the payments, who owns the underlying deposit, and who owns the charter. And actually, there are different answers. So we're, we're calling a lot of this bank as a service, but I think there's, there's, um, there's room to unpick some of that stuff that I think is going to be really important for the market. And I wonder how much of this is um, FOMO, like that that's out there and I need to get at it, or how much of it is your know, strategic understanding of that bank as a service landscape or that fintech stack that's emerging and knowledge of how do I want to play in that new world that's emerging. So yeah, as you can probably tell, it's an area I'm quite passionate about. So I'll shut I, up I think I think the banking as a service to me is a term a little bit like fintech or insurtech. It encompasses so much so widely and we've yet to get to that terminology point. So I've no problem with using it widely at this point, but I have no doubt that at some point we will drill down and the taxonomy will become clearer. Um, Shafali. Yeah, I, to Simon's point, actually, I was just going to say that Rails Bank, I, I think that's exactly what they're trying to do, which is provide this bundle of services across that uh, layer, technology layer that you mentioned, uh, for nascent startups, really, that will keep them. So I guess their membership, their um, partnership with Visa is kind of, you know, helping uh, Visa members um, access all of these platform benefits of Rails Bank. And that's kind of what the, the pitch here seems to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think it's going to be um, uh, interesting to see who who takes them up on it. Who are the end users? I mean, I know that they're often quite uh, quiet about supplier relationships, but I'd be really interested to see whether, in fact, some of the incumbents out there start using these systems, you know, or the, these suppliers, because they realise that that's the best and most efficient way to get what get done what they need to get done. Um, Roisin. Yeah, I was going to say it's obvious that Visa is taking a number of bets, and they're you know they're investing heavily, obviously across lots of different fintechs. Um, this is clearly quite region specific. It sounds like it, it's Southeast Asia has obviously been noted as a huge wave of fintech innovation, and so I'm guessing they think well. The more partners, the more kind of, I guess, investments we have in this space that, that potentially build upon that. And obviously for Railsbank, it's perfect. You've got one of the car schemes, obviously, opening doors to various partners and potential customers. Um, you can't get a better kind of mix when you're entering that space. And I know Railsbank raised a Series A investment round, citing that they were going to enter new regions. So obviously, it's, it's a perfect way to do that with Visa. Okay, well, yeah, that's going to be a really interesting space to watch. You know, I want to see, you know, where else Visa is investing, you know, what comes next after this. I think we can be fairly sure that it will be an API-based company or a company that has uh, utilizes APIs that are central to its business model. Um, and it'd be interesting to see, yeah, geographically where they go next as well. Okay, on to our next story, which is that Marcus has launched point-of-sale lending product. So, Goldman Sachs online bank has launched Marcus Pay, which facilitates payment plans for big ticket purchases. So shoppers can take out loans between $750 and $10,000, which they can then repay in up to 18 months. Uh, interest rates range between 10.99% and 25.99%. Sidebar, I know why they do that, but it's so annoying. Why not just say 11 and 26%? Um, Marcus launched the product with US airliner JetBlue. Uh, the partnership has surely been in the works long before the current pandemic, otherwise that feels a very questionable choice of launch partner. Um, but the bank will launch further partnerships at a later date. So um, I think this is an interesting way for Marcus to have gone. Uh, I think it makes sense given that it's already got a, a, a quite well-established uh, lending and credit product. You know, Marcus Loans in the US are going great guns. But we've also heard a lot about them launching a wealth management tool and a checking account. Um, and it feels like this was, I don't know, is this low-hanging fruit for them? Or is this maybe showing a change in direction strategically? 
Um, what do we think about this one? Yeah, I'd say it's, um, I know there was a lot of criticism of like, why on earth would you launch with a, you know, a travel company at this point in time? But clearly that that was, you know, in light of uh, times before Corona. However, um, I wouldn't get too caught up on that. The play here is, is you know, something that we know works. We've seen the huge um, growth of something like Klarna and PayPal credit. Um, and we've seen a big, big appetite for, for these kind of buy now, pay later. I think about 6% of millennials are cited to have had some form of kind of buy now, pay later loan in the last kind of year um i guess the the question for me is more is this um is this potentially okay goldman marcus or their reputationally um there's a there's a fair amount of criticism being launched about these kind of uh pos finances and um they're hurting credit scores maybe people unaware of quite what the implications are further down the line if you can't make those repayments and given that we are potentially going into quite an obvious recession, is it the right timing more just to be in that kind of lending area? I'm, I'm not completely sure, but um, yeah, it's clearly a play which uh, has a massive, massive kind of appetite and growth interest from, from a big market. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think as we sort of mentioned there, or hinted at, they probably wouldn't have chosen to do this now if they hadn't already done the planning, if that makes sense. Um, I think maybe, you know, something that I'd like to dig into a bit more when there's more detail is they say it's for big ticket items. So if this is for things like flights or holidays, you know, and then maybe fridges or cars, it is a much more traditional model. And perhaps I think will be subject to less scrutiny than uh, some of the other schemes you mentioned, you know, for example, Klarna. And one of the reasons that's come under such uh, fire is because it's, um, you know, perceived to be encouraging people to spend money on you know fast fashion you know you shouldn't be borrowing money to buy a pair of trainers maybe you do need to borrow money to buy a new fridge or to, to pay for a holiday um, but it'd be really interesting to see who their partners are next I think and I think that feeds into your point about reputation you know who do they choose to work with on this Shafali. Yes, um, I think that interest rate uh, literacy point is a very important one so uh, in my last um, company I used to work um, for there's there was a poll that was done within consumers. So this was around consumer credit and finances and, you know, giving credit cards, loans, et cetera, to consumers. Um, and we found out that, you know, consumers tend to go for cards with a higher interest rate just because they think bigger is better. And that like totally blew my mind when I heard that because it's so, for me, it's like, it's obvious that you go for the lower interest rate. So, so the point is just being that, you know, you have to probably make sure that there's a lot of literacy around it. Or if there is, um, cause 11 to 26% is a decently high interest rate. It's not cheap. And while there's other cards in the market around balance transfer cards that have 0%, uh, for the first few months, um, and other introductory schemes like that. So yeah, it would be interesting to see, um, how they kind of do the comms around it. It's interesting as well, Sarah, you made the point that, um, you know, what does this do for the Marcus brand? Um, Because there was two types of point of sale lending. There's the point of sale lending that's kind of cool and young, but possibly, arguably, is it predatory? There's some debate about that. And then there's old school point of sale lending, which is 0% on your sofa. Um, And that 0% on your sofa, interest-free credit stuff doesn't feel very attractive. But actually, from a consumer perspective, it's a merchant funded discount. It's another form of discounting. It's it's a way for a business to acquire you as a customer, but you as a customer aren't losing out. In fact, you're protected by it being a credit product and you're basically getting it. You're just um, paying for a product in installments um, with 0% interest rate. And 
you know, if if Marcus had gone that route, that could have been interesting. I know there's a lot of businesses, a lot of the traditional banks and Hitachi Capital and Barclays and many others do that sort of thing. And in fact, I did some research in this space back in 2018 and suggested that holidays and travel was a big area that had yet to be exploited for that type of um, sort of point of sale lending. So there's huge demand in um, travel, there's huge demand in e-commerce, and indeed a lot of the point of sale lenders I'm speaking to are saying like the e-commerce point of sale space is only just getting started, but the need for responsibility in it and to protect your brand in it is going to be absolutely critical. And I think there's lessons to be learned from some of the negative press that have come out. But I also think point of sale lending can both be done responsibly and done as a platform. And what's interesting is Marcus seem to be positioning themselves as bit of a platform you know they play well with apple they now play well with JetBlue. what does that mean for their ambition to become an actual platform and and what can other incumbents learn from being more of a platform and partner um, that has a technology platform that thinks more like stripe than it does like actually wear a white label affinity card i think there's something really interesting i think also arguably that's the model that you know you see monzo and starling and indeed revolut using as well you know monzo doesn't offer its own savings account or many of its own savings account you know Revolut doesn't offer its own insurance products. All, all of that is done from a platform perspective. So yes, absolutely. I, I definitely think that's the way that, that banking is moving. Erin? Uh, yeah, and I, I mean, the point that I was going to jump in, Simon, off the back of yours is, um, I mean, this is another clear move by by Goldman to, to go down the stack, right, and to be moving down market. And I think this is one of many, many steps that we're going to see come out of, of the Marcus brand. Um, Timing seems a little bit unfortunate on, on this one, um, so we'll have to see in terms of how uh, how quickly they roll it out. But um, no, I think it's it's uh, it's a pretty clear signal that you know Goldman is is going to continue to invest in in this part of the market. Absolutely, so it's going to be really interesting to see uh, to see what they do next. Right now, on to our and finally story, um, and this one uh, is interesting. Um, given our panel today, um, a women-only neobank is coming to Brazil. So um, the bank is called, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, I suspect, Elas. Um, it's named after the Portuguese word for they. Um, and the idea is that the services it offers will help shrink the gender gap uh, in financial services access. Um, apparently, whilst that has uh, generally shrunk worldwide, it's actually widened in Brazil over the past six years. So unfortunately, Brazil seems to be going backwards somewhat. Elas seeks to meet specific needs, which only women know, um, which is a very mysterious tagline. Um, the idea is to promote women in the business world based on financial inclusion, particularly in the investment market. Um, the service is unburdened, uncomplicated and unbureaucratic, and it promises to think in detail about the needs of women in different professional categories and create solutions for them. So it was actually um, sort of mooted first in January. Um, it's now released its waiting list, but there's still no firm launch date. So um, what do we what do we think of this? Roisin, go first, by all means. Sure. So it's um, there's not too much out there in terms of detail on exactly what this will look like. And as you say, the tagline is slightly mysterious, but definitely, definitely interesting. Um, but what does seem to be super apparent is that financial inclusion is the uh, is clearly the aim for, for Brazil and their economy at the moment. I had no idea quite how bad things were. I think um, Brazilian women with the same education level on average earn 25% less than men. Um, there's some really bad stats about only 8% of senior execs in Brazil's largest 10 banks are women. Um, 
barely any board positions, that kind of thing. And I think that with the neobanks that are now starting up, so you've got things like Newbank making huge efforts in this space, um, I guess not only to have representation in their workforce, but then to build products that are more inclusive for the rest of, I guess, the population of Brazil. Um, hopefully these things will will start to kind of change. Um, I did read that 15% of people in the bottom income quintile uh, don't have a bank account in Brazil. So again, there's some really big problems and this is what digital banks can change. And, you know, hopefully this is another scenario where this will this will take off. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, wherever you have, uh, you know, large, large inequality in society, unfortunately, it feels like gender inequality is even more pronounced than perhaps it is elsewhere. Um, we see so many statistics about, you know, women being the, often the poorest members of society and, and the ones who struggle most to get access to financial services. Um, did anybody else? Uh, Shefali? Um, I think it's an interesting angle. I could see... Um, some benefits to it. So for, for instance, if they're specializing in kind of providing funding to female entrepreneurs, maybe. So that could be an angle that they could take. Um, as uh, Roisin said, there isn't very much out there about them. But, you know, I, I just, I, I, at the risk of sounding, <laughs> um, you know, uh, contrarian, I, I just don't know what they're trying to achieve out of this because I, I, it's not going to solve the income gap situation. So uh, unless there's female-only products such as, um, uh, I don't know, like offering uh, single moms a credit line or something. Uh, but then again, it also goes to the risk of, you know, another like, uh, like sexist thing. <laughs> well, why would you leave uh, single dads out of it, for example? So um, I would love to know the, like really what direction they're going to with it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so um, important that these products, which um, are designed to be inclusive, don't inadvertently end up being exclusive, if that makes sense. Erin? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to, to comment because there isn't a whole lot um, of information available. But clearly, what's been happening hasn't been working. Um, and so let's try something different. And that's why I love the industry that we work in. We can be bold and disruptive and try something. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But clearly we have a, a huge issue that needs to be solved. And so um, I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for them. And hopefully they find some creative way to empower and, and, uh, um, and get some of the figures that Rasheen was talking about earlier closed because um, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty sad situation. Um, but yeah, time will tell, um, and and hopefully they can get some uh, some great talent to to come up with some good offerings and see where life takes us. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge opportunity to design products and services that are subtly inclusive, if that makes sense. So you know, look at the biggest problems that they actually have. Why don't women have bank accounts? Why don't women invest? And try and target those problems, but without making them neon pink and wrapping them in a pretty bow. Um, you know, sort of subtly subtly finding their audience. Uh, Simon. I think that was going to be my point, which was uh, we're in a position where fintech uh, platforms have made it cheaper than ever to build more personalized products and services. But that doesn't mean um, cliched products and services or overly hyper-personalized. But I do think there's something interesting about if it costs me less than ever to build a, a fintech platform or to, to leverage all of these APIs that are out there. And I know Brazil has a burgeoning challenger bank scene. Um, then that's got to be uh, allowing people to solve problems in creative ways. And let's let's hope they do that. Um, there's a good article from the Gates Foundation that I dug up. 
up um, that was looking at um, you know, a study that they'd done, which was saying that um, you know, the impact of uh, female empowerment and female financial inclusion massively outweighs um, financial inclusion investment more broadly. Um, and that there was a study by the McKinsey Global Institute that estimated fully incorporating women into the economy globally would add $12 trillion to GDP by 2025. But not only that, you would see lots of community benefits. So it's an outsized investment um, by any economy it, to invest in its women because of the societal impact it has, not just on children, but on wider communities. So there's a there's a nuance between the systemic uh, challenge and the the eventual product that gets created, but somewhere in the middle of the, are these uh, are these abilities and these superpowers that um, you kind of the commoditization of creating fintech product means. Uh, but let's not get lazy with the branding. I think that's a really good point. I think I think nobody doubts the broader benefits to society as a whole of getting women involved in financial services, whether that is getting them accounts in the first place, enabling them to spend, enabling them to build businesses, or in fact, you know, making them uh, you know senior mem- senior board members and put it in. The c-suite um it's just a case of how do we get there and can we do it faster please um well on that note i think that wraps up this week's new show thank you so much to all our guests uh, where can people find out more about you do you have a twitter handle or a website you'd like to share with our listeners erin so you can find out about scb at scb.com and my twitter handle is at erin underscore plaques brilliant thank you shafali how about you Yes, um, you can reach me uh, on Twitter at Shafali underscore G or on LinkedIn. Um, And of course, uh, you can find Fluidly at uh, www.fluidly.com. Perfect. And Rasheen, how about you? Um, If you'd like to hear more about Flux and receiving digital receipts into your banking app, then go to tryflux.com. Or if you'd like to follow me, it's Rasheen Levine uh, across all different social media. So it's R-O-I-S-I-N-L-E-V-I-N-E. And Simon, what about you? Uh, S.Y. Taylor on Twitter or 11FS.com if you want to know more about what we're up to. And there's lots of stuff we're up to. We just published uh, our updated uh, 11FS.com forward slash work page. Uh, learn about some of the things we're doing with our clients. Perfect. Um, and as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Um, and on the website that Simon just mentioned, you can also find our COVID homepage. So if you want to find out all the exciting and interesting content that uh, my team and many others have put out, Um, on coronavirus. If you haven't yet had your fill, then please do head there. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and it helps others to find the show. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves fintech who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, please do pass along the podcast and tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email us at podcast11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.